My name is Ryan Miner. I am your host of a Minor Detail Radio podcast, where the minor details of every story matter. Each week, I talk to Maryland newsmakers, from elected officials, journalists, political candidates, to policy wonks and everyday Marylanders. A Minor Detail podcast is the fusion between Maryland news and politics. Real people, real stories, honest conversation. You can also follow us on the web at aminordetail.com. Sit back, relax, and have fun. Hey, everybody. Welcome to A Minor Detail. My name is Ryan Miner, and welcome back. We've had some marginal technical difficulties in the last couple of weeks. I promise that I will get Mayor Jake Day on the on the horn soon. He and I have been going back and forth. I was supposed to interview him last Monday evening. Last Sunday, we had tech technical difficulties. Unfortunately, it just didn't work. But tonight I have a special guest. Uh, it is the former Maryland Attorney General. His name is Doug Gansler, and he joins me now. Hey, Doug, how are you? Good. How you doing, Ryan? Hey, Doug. It's been, what, about a six or seven months since we last talked, and uh, a hell of a lot has happened since then. <laughs> Both uh, in Maryland and nationally, that's correct. Yeah, I, I always We live in a love... crazy political world. Yeah, yeah. So I don't even know where to begin. I I love picking your brain about politics in Maryland. Um, you're you're a a political encyclopedia. Um, you know, you served two terms as our attorney general, and it was two, right? Am I? I hope I'm not mistaken. No, that's right. There were two terms as uh, Maryland attorney general. One one year of that, of the eight years, I was the president of all fifty attorneys general, the National Association of Attorneys General. It's very Actually, in my current job, I stay very involved. I work at a law firm called Buckley Sandler, and I represent companies that, that work with the state attorneys general. So I'm, I'm following all the national races there as well, and, it's, and, and even that's been interesting and to watch as well. But, you know, how, how, how do Republicans navigate Trump and how the Democrats navigate this sort of schism between, for lack of a better term, the sort of Bernie Sanders Democrats and the Hillary Clinton Democrats? And it's been interesting to watch both here in Maryland and, and around the country. No, I agree. Um, yeah, you know, we were talking, I was at, uh, let's see, Tall's three weeks ago. I'm sure you've spent many summers down in Crisfield walking around and yeah. <laughs> meeting folks. And so, you know, here we are. So I guess my first question to you is what have you been up to? You've been on elected office for four years. And I know the last time we were talking, you're practicing law, but since you, um, since you ran in 2014 for governor um, unsuccessfully, you started practicing law. What have what have you been up to for the last couple of years? Yeah, so I'm a lawyer. I'm, I'm making a living, uh, you know, an honest living. Uh, not that politics isn't, um, but I did 22 years of government service. I was an assistant United States attorney for six years and the state's attorney in Montgomery County for eight years and the attorney general for eight years. So being in the private sector was uh, a welcome change, frankly. Um, I didn't go to Taz, for example, this year in 120-degree <laughs> weather and four hour drive to Southern Maryland to, where there's mostly people from Delaware. Um, and so I'm not doing th- th- those kind of things. I am helping a lot of different candidates, um, working on a bunch of campaigns and uh, nationally and here and on the political side, on the professional side, um, you know, I'm doing a lot of legal work in the state of Maryland, 
representing people, representing companies, and at the same time, I'm doing some proactive work. For example, working to get state attorneys general around the country to sue ExxonMobil for climate change. Um, hmm. And that we've had some success in that. Um, working on a bunch of, uh, involved in a bunch of boards. I started a nonprofit lacrosse league up in Baltimore City 10 years ago called Charm City Lacrosse. I'm very involved in the board there. Um, and also working on something called College Track, which is uh, Kevin Durant, his foundation is bringing schools that are, there are 18 of them on the West Coast, and we're going to have the first one on the East Coast. It's going to be at Suitland High School in Prince George's County coming up this fall, so we're working on that. So keeping, keeping busy on a number of fronts and uh, kind of enjoying life. Kevin, Kevin Durant, as in the American professional basketball player? Yeah, so he's got um, – he actually went to Suitland High School, and what College Track does is it works with mm. a, a school and, and kind of goes in and tutors the kids and works with the kids and gets them uh, their grades up and, and mentors and gets them into college and keeps them um, sort of on a successful path. And it's had amazing success out in the West Coast. And because uh, – and Kevin Durant's very involved in the one in San Francisco on College Track, and so he decided to do- donate $10 million to get a college track here in Maryland up and running. Um, and that's going to be at Super High School, and it's going to start this fall. So, you know, pretty excited about that. And, uh, you know, because I think that's one of our biggest – the biggest problem we have, at least here in Maryland, is a lack of opportunity um, and lack of access for some yeah. folks, both in terms of housing and education and, and criminal justice and, and the education piece is something I'm particularly interested in. Yeah, we'll bounce around all night and talk about some some issues. But my, you know, speaking of American basketball, what do you think about the president's tweet at LeBron James? Oh, I I didn't see it, but I did. I saw the LeBron James interview, and I saw that he tweeted something about that. But I didn't see the tweet. What what did he say? Well, the president basically said that he was watching uh, CNN's Don Lemon and that. Don Lemon made LeBron James look smart because, and he inferred that he's pretty dumb. And he also said that Don Lemon's the dumbest guy on television. So it was a big hallabaloo and another attack um, at a professional basketball player or a professional athlete who also happens to be African-American. There seems to be a pattern, right, Doug? I mean, I kind of see there's something. Yeah. And look, there's no mystery. Donald Trump is a racist. He's an egomaniac. He's a narcissistic egomaniac at that, and he's mentally ill. Anyone anyone who can lie with the facility that he does on a daily basis clearly has mental health issues. So that that's not a real problem. I mean, and so the I don't even the 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 guilty part that I feel about this whole thing is I'm sort of like everybody else. I'm getting numb to Donald Trump. I mean, it's like. So he tweets something about LeBron James. I don't even really care what it is because I know what it's going to be sort of in general terms, what it's going to be about. And it, it doesn't really phase me anymore, which is really sad because this guy does something every day or says something every day that would be disqualifying for anybody, any other former president of the United States, yet he's still there and he's still our president. And it's sad and disgraceful. Um, I I'm I'm watching this as you are, and we see something every day happen with this administration. Um, Doug, as far as uh, attorneys general go, um, Brian Frosch, our, our current attorney general, who is running for re-election this year, 
he is he's been doing what I believe Democrats have expected him to do. And he's taking on the emoluments clause. He has been hammering Trump pretty hard uh, over the last two years since he's been president, year and a half. And he is, you know, and, and I think to an extent, Larry Hogan has uh, largely stayed out of Frosch's way. Um, what more can a, an attorney general do? What more can can he do to to challenge the sitting president of the United States? Well, yeah, Brian Frosch has done a lot in that regard, and I think it's it's good that you bring that up because because we have a Republican president, because we have a Republican Senate, and because we have a Republican Congress. It really falls upon the Democratic attorneys general to protect the rule of law, to protect the Constitution against Donald Trump and push back. The, the, the tricky part for Brian Frosch in his office and the 467 lawyers in his office is to make sure that they're carrying on the daily work of, of the people of Maryland in terms of consumer protection, protecting cor- from corporate fraud and, and, and all in the environment and transportation, all the roles that the state AG has, and he's been able to, to do that successfully. But I do think that the state AGs really do need to, to be this barrier uh, to protect us from, from the excesses of Donald Trump, whether it's the, the immigration policy, whether it's lock, you know, locking up little kids uh, that are coming across the border, whether it's DACA, whether it's um, you know, gun control, whatever, you know, and people shooting up schools, whatever the issue of the day is, emoluments is another one. Um, the Democratic AGs, including Brian Frosch, have really taken the lead on that. I mean, uh, General Ferguson in Washington State, uh, General Jepson in Connecticut, you know, and, and, and Madigan in Illinois and some of the others have really stepped up here. And, and they need to because if they don't, who will? And so it's really important that, that Brian Frosch is, is part of that group. Doug, looking at this from a legal perspective, uh, clearly you don't have access to some of the documents or I guess some of the high-reaching officials in, in President Trump's administration, and maybe you wouldn't want to. But looking at it from the outside, and just as a former attorney general, um, private citizen, do you think that the president is violating the emoluments clause? I mean, I think that there's a good case to be made that there is something there. He's using – Look, getting people to go to his his golf courses, his uh, his resorts, and and whatnot, and who's paying for it? We are, Doug, the taxpayer. Right. Well, he absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, it's crystal clear that he's violating the emoluments clause. In fact, federal judge Peter Massetti, who's one of the most respected jurists on the bench in the United States, much less Maryland, uh, has agreed with that and let the case go forward. So uh, clearly, he he is doing that. I mean, his. From day one, it's been transparent that Donald Trump's interest is his family enrichment in this whole deal. I mean, he never thought he was going to get elected in the first place, and he did. And so they've been making money hand over fist in promoting the Trump brand around the world and at the, to the exclusion of, of surrounding states. So, yes, he, he, he's violated that. And what will be interesting, and I think it's sort of the sub text of this whole emoluments clause thing is it's, it will be treated as a real a regular lawsuit. It's a federal court. And so at some point he's going to have to turn over his tax records, which every other president has done except for him. So you've got to assume there's some, some valuable information hidden in there and secreted in there, whether it's about his connections with Russia or, or 
the emoluments clause. And so it's going to be uh, interesting to see that, and that will undoubtedly be part of discovery as that case goes forward. Well, watching the special counsel, and I don't know, have you ever had the opportunity to meet Bob Mueller when, as a, as a, as, in public service, Doug? Bob Mueller was my boss for two years. So I was an assistant United States attorney in the homicide section, and Bob Mueller was my, was my supervisor. I, I worked with him on a daily basis. In fact, we had a, a pretty high-profile case that I, that I was involved in. It was myself and uh, Kay Winfrey when we were assistant United States attorneys dealing with the Russian diplomat who killed a girl at DuPont Circle who was a drunk driver. I don't know if you remember that. It was, I do um, remember that. And it was a first, yeah, it was a pretty high-profile case, and, and uh, Sheridanski at the time was the, the head of the Republic of Georgia, and it was the first time they waived diplomatic immunity, and it was a very high-profile case, and it was my case, and Bob Mueller was my supervisor on it, so we, we worked on that case and many other cases. Um, so he actually had been the uh, U.S. attorney out in, in, in San Francisco and Boston, and then he came back. He wanted to be a line assistant in homicide and joined our section and then became the head of the section, and I worked with him in, in that capacity. So, you could, so speak yeah, to, that, you could speak to his credibility. You can speak to his professionalism. What is your take on Bob Mueller as a professional, you know, as someone who honorably served our country and then went on to become FBI director? Well, you couldn't, you can't, you cannot find someone more apolitical, someone more ethical, someone who is more of a straight shooter uh, than Bob Mueller. I mean, he is. Yes, he's a Republican, but he is. Uh, you know, calls him as he sees him. I mean, the the fact that that there has not been one leak from his investigation in all this right. time s- speaks volumes uh, as to the kind of person he is and what kind of shop he runs. He's a no nonsense guy. He's not going to be subject to political wins. He doesn't want to be in front of a microphone. Um, he's just somebody who believes in public service and is doing his job. And so, and the idea of going after him, you know, clearly it's going to backfire and because, because he does have a long history in public service and a, and, and a distinguished one. So, and, you know, look, we don't know what he's going to come out with. Maybe he finds that there isn't anything. I'd be surprised, but maybe that's, that's the result of this, and then we, people should accept that. That's why you yeah. have a special investigator. That's why you have an independent investigator. Well, it doesn't look good for the president of the United States to every day be firing off tweets, um, attacking Robert Mueller, calling him conflicted. And the president's excuse is somewhat interesting when he says that he has a major confliction because apparently long ago there was some, I don't know, issue with Bob Mueller and Donald Trump's golf course, and now he calls Bob Mueller conflicted, and he, he now he is up from 13 um, Democrats to 17 angry Democrats. And every day you see the president attacking the special counsel and his lawyers. You know, you're a lawyer, Doug. I don't know what the hell happened to Rudy Giuliani, but every time I see him on television, I have to think Donald Trump has to be the worst client that Rudy Giuliani has ever taken. And Rudy Giuliani, whatever happened to him, has got to be one of the most uh, – in the last five, four months, as Donald Trump's lawyer, I have seen some of the goofiest legal strategies ever argued in, on national television, Doug. Well, for, Rudy Giuliani became irrelevant and, over the last number of years, and this has put him back in relevance. So he is – you know, enjoying every minute of it. And he's certainly, unlike Bob Mueller, he is not allergic to 
media. He wants to be in front of the cameras every minute that he can. And he's espousing, yeah, crazy legal theories. Now, part of that is because he's got a, an incredibly difficult client. I mean, this is a guy who, as I said earlier, is a, is a chronic serial liar. He's a guy that sexually assaults women. He's a guy that pays off porn stars. He's a guy that thinks Vladimir Putin is, is a hero. I mean, you, you can go on and on on, on the list of, of who he's dealing with. So it's pretty difficult. You know, he's got a difficult client, but he's also kind of, yeah, some of the theories he's coming out with and some of the things he's saying are, are just are nutty. But the problem is he's got this, what they keep calling his base. Which is, an, yeah. I, which is Trump's base, which is an ironic group of people because they are, from what I see of that base on TV and other places, they couldn't be less like Donald Trump. I mean, Donald Trump is you know, a billionaire New York guy who flies around in his private jets and, and his base doesn't seem to be of that ilk. And it's just a, it's a bizarre disconnect. I mean, he's yeah. certainly not a man of the people, Donald Trump. You know, I'm... I, I'm a, an astute follower of cable news, sometimes too much, and I get wrapped up in the the daily saga of what is happening. And I've been watching, I you know, I turn on Fox News every once in a while just to see what uh, the narrative is, what the you know what the the primetime hour guys are saying in defense of Trump, and basically that network has become nothing more than uh, a 24-hour shill for this president. And I, I just don't watch it anymore. I used to, but it you know they only right. have a few good journalists on there. But I'm 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 perplexed by Alan Dershowitz, and you and Alan share. Uh, a, you went to Yale University, and he went to Yale, uh, although he went to Yale Law School, you went to the University of Virginia. I, I don't understand what Alan Dershowitz is trying to get out of this with his passionate defense of Trump. What shifted? I mean, this is a guy who used to be a brilliant lawyer. He may, he may be still is a brilliant lawyer, um, became famous in the 90s for the OJ case, and then uh, you know, he's known in widespread legal circles. He's, he's almost I mean, he's pretty much a famous guy. And all of a sudden you see him defending Donald Trump when he's a ardent Democrat. I don't get it. What do you make of this? I just I mean, I think he's a contrarian. I think he likes to hear himself talk. And some and, and what he would say is that his theories would stand for Hillary Clinton in the White House right now, that he would yeah. still believe that some of these are unwarranted attacks on the president and all that. But I think, yeah, look, your point's not lost to me. I watch him and think, you know, this is embarrassing. It's an, it's an, he seems to be, you know, having these legal theories that are contradicted, you know, right there on the television, the same show by, by actual legal scholars, other legal scholars. And it, it just, it's sort of fascinating to watch because, I don't understand what his motives are other than attention, um, but it you know seems to work. He's getting attention. We're talking about him, and we yeah, know right we now. are talking and about. So him. It, it seems right, and so it seems to be working. And he's apparently having problems getting into some of the parties on Martha's Vineyard, but you know other than that, he he should be okay. Yeah, I saw Michael Avenatti, Stormy Daniels' attorney. He he was on Anderson Cooper last week sometime, and he w he and uh, Dershowitz were battling out some legal theory. And you know, Avin Avenatti hit him. He's like, "Wow, well, you know, I know that you've been having a rough go around, Alan, because you can't get into some of the parties on, on Martha's Vineyard." And I'm yeah. thinking to myself, "I've never even been to Martha's Vineyard, so I have to get up there some." 
I don't know what these parties yeah, are, or, but or they not. seem to be. You know, it's, yeah, you have to be part of the social scene. Now, Avenatti's been an interesting – I mean, he's sort of become a screensaver on the television, so he's on all the time. But I think he comports <laughs> himself very well. I mean, he's a pen law yeah. guy. He's a smart guy, and he has taken, you know, Stormy Daniels by storm. I mean, it's, he's, he's, he's on all the time, and this is a guy that nobody had ever heard of. And now is, is, you know, sort of becoming lawyer of the stars. I mean, the, the, what's interesting about cable television in general and the news cycles now is that people can ride this stuff into stardom. And he's an example of it. And he has made this, you know, his representation of Stormy Daniels into his own personal cottage industry where he's going to be, you know, uh, making a whole lot of money uh, as a result. Uh, people are going to want him to be their lawyer. Yeah, and I – and I see him on television conduct himself. He's thorough. His legal strategy is promising. And everything that he's delivered as far as tidbits of, of information and what, he's, you know, what his sources are telling, he's almost a de facto journalist in a way. I can't, I can't right. tell someday. But everything that he has said has actually come out to be true. It, it, nothing has ever been disproven that he has released. So to me, right. he's credible. No, he is credible, and his and 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 his legal presumptions and thoughts and theories uh, are are you know seem to be on point. And yeah. you know, again, he he's his his antagonist is Donald Trump, so it's an easy sort of opponent. <laughs> but still, he's you know he's out there uh, you know making a living, so he's doing a good job with it. Yeah, I mean, if you were advising Trump, would you just tell him to stop tweeting, just be quiet, stop yeah. talking about this? No, I think that's right. I mean. He's not doing himself any favors, um, well, certainly by doing the tweets or really most of what he's doing is not doing him any favors. And picking on if, – if everybody's an enemy, then nobody's a friend, and he seems to be picking on everybody. I mean, going after LeBron James, like we, we mentioned earlier, I mean, so what's, what's, what's the upside there? I mean, LeBron Brain, James isn't uh, – you know, he's not the special investigator, and you know, I watched that interview, and I'm not a Don Lemon fan. I think Don Lemon is sort of a little bit too much about Don Lemon. But, I mean, Brian Williams, I like, I like some of them, but uh, Don Lemon is not one of them. But I didn't see anything that LeBron James said that was controversial or, you know, it, clearly he doesn't, he's not a Donald Trump fan. He's, he, he said, you know, if, if it were against Donald Trump, I might run for president. Otherwise, no. I mean, that's the most sort of out there statement he made. That wouldn't, you know, most presidents sort of ignore that. I mean, just think of, you know, Barack Obama, whether you like Barack Obama or don't like Barack Obama, and I was obviously a big Barack Obama fan. I ran his campaign in Maryland and so forth. But um, that guy took stuff every single day from people, and he got attacked every single day by people, by the press, by, by you know, different groups, by Republicans, and he never bit once. Um, you know, and that's because he's he served with distinction, class, and elegance. And Donald Trump is doing sort of the opposite of that. He takes debate every single time someone says something negative about him, he can't he can't deal with it. He can't stand it because yeah. he's a narcissist. He can't so he handle the slight. And he he typically goes after. You, I've seen it many times. He'll he'll attack uh, African American females and females in general. Um, calling them low IQ, that's a standard in his repertoire of insults. And I just, every time that he responds or says something negative, it's funny watching his wife rebuke him. It's really interesting. Like she, she rebuked his him on the LeBron. Yeah, yeah. And his daughter, 
And, you know, Doug, I'm looking at your career. You, you have been in public service for years. You understand how to deal with the media. You have, you know, look, you, you've been through the ringer yourself. Um, all politicians have to an extent. You run for governor of a major state. Um, the press is sometimes a pain in the ass. I get it. We are. And uh, counting myself in, in that category, we ask tough questions. And sometimes we can we, we hound elected officials and they get, you know, they take it personal. But it's, it's part of the, you know, it's part of the, the office. It's just part of the game and part of the what we are as an American society. And I got to tell you, what hits me the worst about Donald Trump is when he attacks the press and calls them the enemy of the people. And then, you know, Doug, a couple, you know, last month we saw this this terrible situation um, transpire in Annapolis, of all places, where people from the Gazette were um, – are, are, yeah, I think it was the Gazette or the Capitol. Um, they were they were murdered. Capitol by, Gazette. Yeah, the, 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 the yeah. five journalists. And I'm sure that you have probably come in contact with some of those folks in your career. Yeah, and I mean, look, and, and the difference is, you know, the yes, if you're in politics, if you're running for office, if you're um, in government, you're going to see inaccurate stories. You're going to see stories with a bias. You're going to see stories with a slant. And, you know, I dealt with, when I, during my 22 years in government, I had, you know, Jason Blair of the New York Times, who ended up getting in all kinds of trouble for making stuff up. I had John Wagner of the Washington Post, who can't write a story without making stuff up. But for the majority, I mean, the majority of people that cover politicians, you know, they're doing the best they can, and they cover government. And to, for for Donald Trump to go after the press as in general, which is one of the tenets of American democracy, without an open press, you don't have democracy, is is just not right. It's as you say to kids, it's not okay, and he does that now. Do you blame the Capitol Gazette shooting on that? I mean, it, could it, it could have contributed toward it? Yes. It sounded like it was just a very disgruntled person who was upset about a story written about him and obviously had mental issues and had access to a gun, and, and it was a tragedy that occurred as a result of that. So I don't know if you pin that on Trump, but he certainly has created an environment where people are – more critical of the press in general and the mainstream press. And as you mentioned before about Fox News, what, what you also see happening is the polarization of the news. And so you have, you know, the, the liberals are going to be watching MSNBC, you know, Rachel Maddow being sort of the, the example of the, the liberal uh, mouthpiece, if you will, and Fox News being that of the conservative mouthpiece. And people, most people aren't that polarized. I mean, what, what's sad, and I think sort of, going back to the beginning of the conversation uh, in, in terms of where we are in Maryland and nationally, politically, what, what we see through the, our primary system and through Citizens United is we get the far left elected and the far right elected through the primary system when that sort of represents 10% of the population on each side and 80% are somewhere in the middle. And most people yeah. are in the middle and most people just want the news. What happened and, you know, what's going on in the world and what's going on in my state, what's going on in my community, and they don't really want all the editorializing. And the, and the last point I'll make on that, that has become very interesting on uh, sort of with the the 24-hour news cycle of people <laughs> news is you when the Avenatis and the Dershowitzes and the others talk, people are the blended what is news and what is opinion. And so that's also becoming sort of an interesting thing. So people are out there talking about 
their opinion, and people are looking at that as news because that's what's on their television set on the news hour. And it's kind of yeah. it's a little confusing. Yeah, and that's a great segue into Maryland politics, Doug. I, I'm watching the governor's race, and I watch the Democratic primary unfold, and I see that there is somewhat of a battle of where the, the soul of the party is going. And I know that this is an age-old an age old discussion of is the Democratic Party or is the Republican Party controlled by the, the, the left wing, the liberals, um, the, the, the hard progressives, or on the Republican side, the right wing. And in Maryland, I see that there's a lot of people, including myself, that are decidedly in the middle, a centrist that has all kinds of different political beliefs. I don't necessarily believe that any particular party represents my political values um, 100%, even 50%. I, I don't know. I'm all over the map, and I don't, I'm like a guy without a party, and that's okay. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not looking to have uh, a political party, and I'm not beholden to, to any political party, but I got to tell you, I'm, I find this, I find Maryland fascinating, Doug. We're a purple state in a, in a sense, even though we have a two to one Democratic majority and we have a Republican governor whose popularity is at 70 percent and yeah, between 70 and 75 percent. And he's classified as the second most popular governor behind Charlie Baker in, um, in Massachusetts. Massachusetts. So, yeah. yeah, what do you what do you think about that, Doug? I mean, is Larry Hogan popular because he's. He's he's a centrist or a moderate, or is he popular because he's listening to constituents? What's your take on how he, you know, how he achieved his popularity? Well, I think it's a, a number of things. I mean, he's got he's you know, and I I polled and we looked at running, and the Washington Post did a poll, and I was up thirty one percent on the Democratic field that ended up running. And but in that same poll that I was up thirty one percent on the field that was running, I was down nine percent to Hogan. Uh, to Governor Hogan, and this was earlier this year. And so I kind of looked through the numbers a little bit more and try to figure out what that's all about. And, you know, I think it's a combination of things. I think you hit it on the head when you said we're a purple state. Uh, the, the Democratic establishment still believes we're a blue state. And yet the, the reality is 70% of the elected officials in the state of Maryland right now are Republican. We have more Republican county executives and Democratic county executives. Two of our last three governors have been Republican, and we have a current governor at 76% favorable rating. And how did he get there? I mean, I think he, it's a number of things. The, the, the one big problem that the Republicans have right now is whether or not to embrace Trump or not to embrace Trump. And they kind of, some of them are schizophrenic on it. The John McCain's of the world are calling him as they see him. The other yeah. people are kind of rushing toward him and getting hurt by it. Hogan, in July of the year that Trump was running, he wasn't even president, said, I don't know Donald Trump. I never met Donald Trump. I'm not going to his convention. I'm not, not voting for him. And he's been very disciplined, for better or for worse, and clearly the numbers would suggest for better, by staying away from it, saying, look, that's federal government. I'm about Maryland. I'm not you know, going to concern myself with that. So he's not criticizing. Like the biggest criticism the Democrats have about Governor Hogan right now is that he's not criticizing. Going back to sort of what Brian Frosch was doing, the emoluments clause, others. Larry Hogan is staying away from that. He's not criticizing. He's not embracing what Trump's doing. He's just he's focusing on Maryland, and I think that political strategy clearly has worked at this point. Now, will the Democrats try and expose some of the other issues in the next three months? Yes, they will. But I think there's that. I think he 
he moved school back after Labor Day is one of the things people remember that he actually has done, and people seem to like that. Whether you know it's controversial in terms of whether it's good for education, and particularly for minorities, people say it's not. But he moved school back after Labor Day. He lowered the tolls on the Bay Bridge, for which he got a big billboard saying "Thank you, Governor Hogan." And and he also did a, had a very public humanitarian battle with cancer and. You know, he didn't run away from it. He embraced it, and he was very public about it. And a lot of people, in fact, I would say most people, have themselves, their family, or their friends have battled cancer. And he sort of became an ally in that in that battle. So I think, um, and he's you know, and he, and he goes everywhere, and he meets people, and people seem to like him. So I think all of that, and and he's governed from the center. Now, what the Democrats will tell you is, if he were to get reelected. You know, he's going to turn into sort of a right-wing Republican, and he may or may not. Yeah. People can sort of opine on that, but that's – I think that's sort of why he's so popular. But I haven't seen any uh, – look, and, and he's taken some hits by the right wing. I've, I've talked to many of our Republican friends and folks that I see – look, I grew up in western Maryland, and my wife and I spend um, a, a significant time on Maryland's eastern shore – and people say, Larry Hogan is a rhino, we're not going to vote for him, or we're going to hold our nose and vote for him, and we're not sure, you know, he's not with us on guns, he's not with us on abortion, he's not with us on some of these social issues that he really doesn't have to come in contact with, or that has little to do with the federal level. And my, my question to these people is, well, let me ask you this, and I, and I say this and I prompt this, you know, Ben Jealous could not be a more stark contrast to Governor Hogan, um, in terms of political philosophy and how he conducts himself, or rather how he kind of shapes his political narrative, and I, I just I say some of these social issues. Who cares? What 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 do you expect the governor to do on guns? What do you what do you really expect him to do to pass an executive order that tomorrow or after the election that somehow um, everybody in the state of Maryland is going to conceal carry? I mean that's going it, to it's not. It's not a plausible pathway, and I see single-issue voters, Doug, that only focus on you know abortion, gay rights, or some other social issue. And I'm thinking that has nothing to do with with what Governor Hogan or any governor, for that matter, is doing here in the state of Maryland. Well, right. I mean, they don't like the fact that we are open and inviting to people of all sexual orientations, races, and, and gender, and so forth, and maybe people think, well, he, he sh- we shouldn't be like that, or that he should curtail the ability for women to get abortions if they choose, or that he should make it, you know, guns more accessible. Uh, the, I think what he has done is, is sort of stayed away from all those issues. You, you basically don't hear the word immigration, guns, abortion, um, or, or marriage equality come out of his mouth. And so he stayed away from it in, on both sides. He hasn't promoted any of those sort of de- more democratic issues, but he hasn't really expand or you know fought against them either. And so you're, he's going to get criticized by both sides. That's p- sort of part of being in politics. I mean, the issue that the Democrats are having. I mean, Hogan seemed to pick a side in the Trump battle. He sort of stayed out of it, and he certainly hasn't embraced Donald Trump. And on the Democratic side. The problem is, you know, with the Democrats right now is is sort of a schism between that the progressive far left and the more moderate. And and there's probably more numbers in the moderate group, but there's yeah. more vocal 
folks in the, in the progressive side to have this sort of two-to-one Democratic advantage come to fruition and to beat Larry Hogan. And so far, it doesn't look like the parties come together yet. There's a number of sort of high-profile Democrats who are actually not only staying out of it, but have endorsed um, Hogan over Ben Jealous and, and sure. a lot of people you, you hear. And so it's a little bit like first they need to say, why should, why, why should Hogan be fired and why should Ben Jealous be hired? And th- that message, you know, has to be set forth in the next three months, or we're going to have the first governor, a Republican governor reelected in Maryland in you know half a century. I think it's, Theodore McKeldin was the last one that was reelected. Yeah, and I believe when um, whose grandson oh, works for the AG's office, by the way. Oh, he does. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Fun fact. You're, I'm telling you, you're an encyclopedia. Um, <laughs> Watching the Democratic primary unfold, there were seven or eight candidates, and you know I looked at a couple of pivotal moments, and my analysis my analysis was that there were some really good candidates who were qualified that could step into the governor's office the next day and be a legitimate governor with executive experience. There were candidates who ran that I thought had no business running, and there were some candidates that were a bit outside of the box. And then there were some candidates that um, were, you know, just kind of run of the mill. And my thought was, is that had you entered the race, Doug, and had John Delaney entered the race and not run for president, um, that to me, I think that either you or John would have walked away from with with the with the nomination. And well, I also know that. Yeah, right. But then the question is, what would we have done in the general election? Well, you know, I, you that, know and that's a different issue. You're a numbers guy. You took a look at the numbers and you decided that um, maybe this is in the year or, you know, you just look, I don't blame you. You, you were an elected public office. I would want to go make some money after I got out of public. I mean, it's and it's nobody should uh, you practicing law. You're in it. You're a hell of an attorney. You're doing a great job. And. I would. I'm sure you were a bit exhausted in, in a while, but you took a look at it, and I'm glad you did, because I, I I tell people this. I said, you know, Doug or John would have been governor, and um, looking at how Larry Hogan has shaped his last four years, three and a half years, um, I think that Democrats they're they're sometimes I see the attacks or that they're a little over the top, and they're grasping for for some. Um, they're grasping for something, and it's just really hard not to like Governor Hogan. It's it's really difficult. He's a nice guy. He gets out and about. But watching the Democratic primary, Doug, what are your thoughts? What are, you know when you, there were a couple of pivotal moments, and of course the biggest pivotal moment for me was when Kevin Kamenetz passed away um, in on on May the tenth, and then Valerie Irvin uh, decided to run for governor, and then she ultimately um, endorsed. Uh, Rashern Baker at the last moment, and there was the clash between Valerie Irving and then Ben Jealous, and that made some 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 news here in Maryland. And, and then I, I just, but other than that, the forums were kind of boring. Um, Rich Madalino had some support here in Montgomery. Chris Vignaraja surprisingly came in like third place. I thought, um, oh, um, Jim, um, the the sure. gentleman from. Yeah, Jim Shea. Jim I thought Shea. he was going to do a little bit better than he he did. I think he p- picked a a unique and fascinating 
Um, Lieutenant Governor Choice, Alec Ross is another good, good and interesting guy that I met along the way. But what's your take on the primary? Were you expecting it the way that it turned out, or um, did you think it was going to go a different way? Well, first of all, the, the big thing was the, the, the sort of the overlay of the whole deal was there were a lot of candidates, and none of them had any money, and no one had heard of any of them. The only people that people had heard of, so sort of your point on executive experience, were Sean Baker, who was the county executive of Prince George's County, and Kevin Kamenitz, who was the county executive of Baltimore County. The rest of them sort of were looking in the mirror and saw a governor, and they're all very good people. Um, you know, Jim Shea is about one of the most accomplished lawyers in, in, in Maryland. Um, you know, yeah. the chairman of the Venable Law Firm was, you know, obviously a very strong lawyer. Um, Alec Ross is an entrepreneur who's had a lot of success. I mean, these are all top quality, top notch people, but you, you do need to, it's a, it's a big uh, step to go have governor be your starter job in politics and, and governing. And so um, it was a very tall order, very difficult task for them to sort of get there. What, what Ben Jealous was successful in doing was sort of grabbing the progressive Bernie Sanders mantle by saying he was the Bernie Sanders guy in Maryland and being able to cobble that together with African-American voters um, that Rashern didn't have enough money or reach to be able to get to, particularly the Baltimore area. So then Joe squeaked, you know, uh, squeaked through the thing there. I think Kevin dying, um, obviously, was very tragic. I was, you know, I supported Kevin in his races. He supported Kevin Kamenetz. He has supported yeah. me in mine. And um, he was a formidable candidate. I think he would have, the polls certainly showed he was about at 20%, was going to have a difficult time getting higher than that, but he had the most money and was running a good campaign. Um, but it was just too much. There was too many people and they were all good people and, and sort of the attention was diverted and therefore the, tur- and the turnout was low because pe- no one was really inspired by any of them because they didn't have enough money to get their message out and, and to distinguish themselves from each other. And the message being sent to Trump doesn't happen in a primary. So people are like, Oh, the numbers were down. The primary is going to be a low turnout in the general. I think the general election is going to have a. It's going to be a huge turnout, huge, because that's when the Democrats can send a message to Trump. Now the question is, are they going to be able to? Are they going to send it through the governor's race or or, or through other races? And, and that remains to be seen. But um, you know, I, I think the primary was very much at the end. It became a two-man race between Rashern Baker and Ben Jealous, yeah. and and Rashern Baker was the establishment candidate had the support of the establishment uh, and much of the establishment in Maryland. And Ben Jealous didn't, but he had the teachers union and he had a number of other unions and a lot of progressive causes and a lot of outside, um, you know, sort of big stars from outside the state that came in and he was able to to win. Um, So we'll see what happens in the general election because he's got to, he's got to bring the democratic party together. He's got to not, you know, he, he's got to sort of reach out to the more moderate voice in the Democratic Party, which is where most of the people are. You know, Montgomery County is a great example. You know, you have Tacoma Park and Silver Spring. Is, <laughs> are, are, you have a lot of um, progressive folks over there. Not everybody, but there's a, big, there's a large chunk of folks. And, but the rest of the county has more sort of moderate Democrats and, and likes business and thinks jobs are a good thing and, and, you know, want to, want to make sure we keep our state going forward and that our schools are great. And the whole, you know, some of this stuff um, that he's got to make sure people recognize that he's all about as well. And he's well, doing that, but it's, it's got to he's got to get some money and some some uh, some surrogates to get that message out there. 
Yeah, and I think that micro, uh, Montgomery County is uh, you know, a unique county. It's overwhelmingly Democratic, but it's also fascinating to watch what has happened here in this past election, especially with the executive race. I was I was watching very closely, as I'm sure you were as well, the county executive race that became essentially a two-man – well, it was a two-man race between Elrich and this – a newcomer to politics, a businessman, David Blair – Elrich ended up beating Blair by 77 votes, and this was a guy that's been on the for four terms. Everybody knows I mean, he's an at-large representative, an at-large councilman, and then after Blair had been defeated and they did the partial recount, you see, you see um, Nancy Florian jump in and say, okay, Ficker is not a viable candidate for the Republicans, and I think that we – that even some Republicans will acknowledge that. Uh, inconvenient fact. And then you see Florine jump in and she's gathering her petitions. It's, I think her petitions are due tomorrow, August the 6th. And so I don't know if she's going to get on the ballot. She might, she may not, but that's going to be fascinating to watch how the two sides split between uh, Florine and Elrich. Yeah. So Montgomery County, the reason why there, there is properly attention dedicated to the conversation about Montgomery County politics is because one out of five voters in the state live in Montgomery County. So it, it's, it's the biggest voting block by far in the state. And so um, it, what happens in Montgomery County does matter sort of statewide, but of course, obviously in the county as well, because it's the economic engine of the state still. And, you know, a lot of jobs here and the whole notion of Amazon coming here is, is a big deal for folks in, in, in the state as well as Montgomery County. In terms of that election, this, you know, each election is different. Each election has a different ebb and flow. The reason why Elrich was so close to David Blair, David Blair is a total newcomer, great guy. I, I know him, and you know, he's been a successful businessman, um, but he was the only one with money. I mean, Elrich had no money. He was, a, he was on public financing. And what right. happened there was Blair ran as the outsider, and Elrich ran as, you know, he, was the, he had been on four terms, but Roger Berliner, George Leventhal, um, you know, there, there were others that ran in the race that uh, you know, Rose Krasnow had been the mayor of, of Rockville and others sort of split up the, not, the, the, the sort of establishment vote. Um, and, and people were the, the sort of Democratic folks that vote in every election were split amongst them. And the, new coming, the newcomers were sort of with David Blair. So that's why it was so close. If it was just been Elrich against Blair from the beginning, Elrich would have won by an enormous amount, I think. Um, but be that as it may, community is very scared of Mark Elrich, um, mostly because of his messaging is sort of, and, and his voting record uh, um, has suggested that he's interested. He's a very, very progressive fellow, unabashedly so. And so the business community is concerned, and Nancy Florine's candidacy will get some traction if she is, runs. I mean, it's it's, it's going to be a very good year to be a Democratic politician, um, and it's going to be a very good year to be a woman politician. Now, she's obviously a, a woman, but she's going to be running as an independent, where Mark will be running as a Democrat. And I, at the end of the day, um, you know, the, the question is, will the Democrat prevail or will the woman candidate prevail? And, it, it, you know, independents rarely win, though they have. I mean, Michael Bloomberg and sure. Bernie Sanders and others, but it's... I, st- I think it's going to be an uphill battle for, but it's certainly doable. Yeah, and I know that there's some 
folks out there that are, like you said, the business community, they are definitely afraid of Mark Elrich, and he has been doing his very best to level with them and say, we may not always agree on some issues, but here's where I stand, and I'm not going to turn my back on Amazon. If they want to come here, we're going to make sure that we get them here. Um, and I'm, I'm following races not only in Montgomery County, but all over the state. Doug, is there any particular race that you're eyeing closely that you're keeping a, uh, a look after going into the general election? Well, I think um, one of the more interesting races in the state, I think, is another very big and powerful county, which is Baltimore County. Um, and, you know, the, the, the candidate is being a race between Councilwoman and State Senator Jim Brochin and Johnny Olszewski Jr., the former delegate in politics, was seen as sort of an also ran. He was 18 points back. Uh, maybe six weeks out, and then the Baltimore Sun endorsed him. And all of a sudden, he became viable, and not only viable, he ends up winning the election by whatever, 70 votes or 18 votes, or yeah. it was within, it was nine, I think, and then they did a recount. It was some incredibly close number out of tens of thousands of votes. Um, but Johnny O won. And now, who's a Republican, um, in administration is the Republican candidate, and so I think that's going to be an uh, interesting race because Baltimore County has become more and more Republican over time, and Hogan is very popular. Some of the, some of the state Senate races, um, I met with a woman yesterday, Jessica Douglas, up in District 4, which is from the western part of Frederick County. She's running yeah. She's a teacher. She's a but, you know, upsets like that. People don't even know who she is. You know, she's out there working hard. She could possibly prevail. I mean, and some of the so there's some of these races where um, around the state where some of the senators, the state senators, uh, are, are going to be an issue. So I think those are some of the races people are looking at. Um, but the county executive of Baltimore County and the one I, I think the Montgomery County with Nancy Colleen um, are, are two to sort of keep your eye on. Yeah, I've been following the, the the Baltimore County race pretty pretty closely. Um, I can tell you this that I am sure that Al Redmer being at the top of the ticket, Larry Hogan did a happy dance on the night of that election because he did not yeah. want Pat McDonough on that ticket. That is just well, crazy. well, not only that he's he's he said some pretty racist things through, throughout right. his career, and he he never he did not endorse. Al Redmer, and he was upset by the way the tone of his campaign went. But uh, Larry Hogan oh, yeah. is very, I mean, yeah, yeah. When I when I in 2010 I wrote an opinion, and it's hard to remember that this was an issue. But back then, uh, marriage equality was a big issue. And in 2010, I wrote an opinion recognizing out-of-state same-sex marriage in Maryland from other states where it was where it was legal. And I did it more on, on the full faith and credit clause. There was a contract that was made in, in Massachusetts, Vermont, and the, states, the six states where marriage equality was legal, and we, brought it, and we brought it to Maryland. Well, McDonough and two or three others, Don Dwyer, I don't remember that name, and a couple of the others, literally started impeachment proceedings against me. The sitting attorney general who issued an opinion based on the, the Constitution and the Supreme precedent started impeachment proceedings. I mean, these guys, they, 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 you know, they're from a different cloth. Should probably prevail, but you just don't know. You, you know, you don't know how Pop Hogan's coattails are going to be on the one hand, 
and you don't know how big the wave for the Democrats is going to be on the other. Yeah. Um, and I, I want to mention as we, we wrap up here, Doug, that it, it looks like that I don't see, barring any catastrophe, um, I live in Maryland's 6th Congressional District. David Trone spent a a lot of money, I think that's fair to say, on the <laughs> The primary, uh, he spent a lot of money in 2016 when he was defeated by Jamie Raskin in the Democratic primary. He came close, but um, you know he got it this time, and he ran a textbook campaign. He he went up to Western Maryland and got to know a lot of those great folks there, and he uh, he he did well in in places like Montgomery County. Aruna Miller would have uh, she, she actually won Montgomery County um, out of the counties in the 6th district but um she just wasn't able to overcome his lead up in western maryland so uh, looking at that race and how that is matched up it would seem that david trone has a pretty good shot at being um the 6th congressional district's next congressman well i think that's right and he was yeah he spent when you say a lot of money he spent 15 million dollars of his own money uh when he lost to jamie raskin and then spent 13 million plus of his own money in this election and won. One of the reasons why he won was there were two establishment candidates, Aruna Miller and Roger Mano, because um, it was a very close race at the end. And if, if one of those two had not run, just the other one had, it might have had a different result. But David Trone won. He ran a, a very good campaign, a very aggressive campaign, and a very expensive campaign, and, and was able to win. And I think you know his Republican ca- uh, counterpart is a woman, Amy Hober, who ran last time so she's got a little name recognition so i don't think it's going to be a total walk that district was re uh redistricted last term it had been you know um uh, was it rascal bartlett i guess out there uh yeah. forever uh, and and you know they, they made it into a democratic district they wanted some guy, a guy named rob dargiola to be uh yeah. the congressman but john delaney did the same kind of idea uh, that trone didn't spend a lot of money and we had a very good campaign and won and now we have David Trone in the same spot. So I think it is a Democratic district. It is a Democratic year. In the presidential year, it's even more Democratic. So I would expect David Trone to be the next congressman from the 6th district. Yeah, I, um, I'm keeping an eye on that race, and I don't see anything else. Um, it's the only congressional race of any interest. I mean, the rest of them are pretty are, are going to be no-brainers. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree with that. And you know, just to wrap up our interview here, Doug, uh, you are from you know uh, Brett Kavanaugh, um, and what's your relationship with him? How did you how do you know him, and what do you think of him as a Supreme Court nominee? Well, so I've known Brett for you know decades. He went to Yale, as did I. He was a couple years behind me. He actually lived. Uh, I, I got to know him better at Yale when he was at Yale Law School. He lived with a number of my very close friends at Yale Law School. Um, he lived with actually eight people in the House. He was the only Republican. Um, the other seven were Democrats, uh, African-American, liberals, the whole thing. Um, you know, I think he – the reason why I, I mention that is because, look, he is conservative, and he's going to vote in a conservative manner. Um, but he's not one of these conservatives that lives in a conservative bubble. And so um, he'll get nominated. Um, and so – you know, if you look at it sort of in, in broad strokes, you, you could think that Donald Trump, when he gets a chance to nominate a Supreme Court justice, is going to pick some neo-Nazi racist, you know, white supremacist, uh, or, or 
his golf starter at one of his clubs. You know, I mean, the fact that he picked somebody who everybody recognizes as being qualified, you know, in the sense that he went to Yale, Yale Law School, he was number one in the class or whatever, clerk on the Supreme Court, has, you know, a distinguished record as a judge, um, is, I think, a good thing, you know, that he picked somebody who's actually qualified to sit on the bench. And he is not as dangerous as some of the other possible selections. And so, um, you know, some of the issues that they're worried about, like abortion being the big one because he happens to be Catholic, um, is, you know, something that he already addressed when he was nominated for the D.C. Circuit. He said that as precedent. It was established law. So he, 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 that's how he viewed it. Um, but we'll see. I mean, he's conservative, and elections have consequences. And my sort of bigger takeaway is I wish people realized that. Because when you elected Donald Trump, you're going to get Neil Gorsuch and uh, Brett Kavanaugh, both I'm sure are good people, both went to Georgetown Prep here in Montgomery County. But that's going to change the, the, the way in which our decisions are made by the Supreme Court and the direction of our country, on, and, and probably not in a positive way. If I had to guess today, Doug, I think he is – I think he gets through – and I think that his confirmation hearings will be fascinating to watch. It will be a primetime television. I think that they're going to probably lay on the, 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 the cinematic drama in those, and they're going to ask him, as they should, tough questions. Um, the nominee, he should be asked tough questions about his judicial and positions and jurisprudence and where he will come down on some issues. I, I think it's going to be political theater, which I – dislike in a way because we really just want him to um to talk about his judicial philosophy and how he would be um as a supreme court justice for you know really the remainder of his entire life he could be there for for four decades or more who knows right um, right yeah and it is going to be theater it's going to be the senators wanting to hear themselves talk and espousing political rhetoric and he's not going to answer any questions because none of them ever answer any questions because they shouldn't really be opining on future decisions anyway and so it's uh, it's going to be kind of crazy, um, but yes, it'll be fun to watch. And well, you know, get to know him. I mean, look, if you watched his acceptance speech, um, yeah, if you watched he's his like a nice acceptance guy. speech, then uh, yeah, I mean, look, he's talked about his mother. He talked about. Yeah, I mean, he's just a yeah. I think they're going to get to think he's a decent human being. Does that mean he's not a conservative? No, he is a conservative, and that's you know what you're going to get when you have a Republican president. Be interesting to see what they talk about with respect to Ken Starr and the 1990s and the the Clinton investigation and that special counsel. So um, I'm I'm it'll be fun to to watch. And but if I had to guess, I think Manchin votes for him. I think uh, the guy from Indiana votes for him, and I think Heidi Heitkamp votes for him. Um, and I think that puts him over the top because we know that most of the Republicans will vote for him. Right. I think so, I think it, he'll. I mean, that there so far hasn't been anything that other than sort of mere speculation that they've come up with any writings, any opinions. And he has a very prolific uh, amount of writings and that kind of thing out there. And they haven't really, at least I haven't seen anything that is sort of a smoking gun of a problem for him. But, we'll, you know, it's more judicial philosophy or conservative philosophy that they're going to attack. And I'm not sure that's going to carry the day, but we'll see. I mean, the most egregious thing about the whole thing is what, the Republicans did to Merrick Garland, who is, yeah, you know, that was just, I, I that was just wrong on so many different levels, uh, particularly uh, constitutional level. Justice. He would have been a great yeah. justice, and that's how, you know, that that's what happens when, you know, when, when uh, 
the president picks a Supreme Court nominee, they should get a hearing. And that that's sort of what sticks in most people's craw. I mean, I think that's sort of the what, what's really underscoring some of the uh, uh, venom being attacked, uh, being directed toward Brett Kavanaugh at this point. Yeah. Any summer plans, Doug? Any vacations? Uh, I just played a lacrosse tournament up in Lake Placid. I'm 55 years old, so just got the 50 and 55 year old categories, and uh, just you know, gonna go see some friends up in New England, and uh, nothing too exciting. Nice. Yeah. Well, I I know next weekend my my family and I we're gonna head down to South Carolina to Myrtle Beach with my mom and dad, and so um, yeah, it'll be nice. But um, Doug, Have I, a great I really time. yeah. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Yeah, get some sun and maybe catch up on some summer reading that I, I haven't done in a long time. And there's a, a mountain of books that I want to read. But, Doug, I, you know, I really appreciate your time. Um, I think you're a stand-up guy. You're fascinating to talk to. And um, your your analysis and opinion is um, valuable to the conversation. And I enjoy doing it. I enjoy talking with you. So um, well, let's stay in touch. Me too. Yeah, all right. Yeah, well, um, all right. All right, cheers. Doug, you have a great summer, and uh, like like I said, thanks again for doing this. Of course, you too. Take care. All right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. Attorney General Doug Gansler, um, great guy. I always enjoy talking to him. Doug's fascinating and just wildly interesting. He's had a really unique career throughout Maryland politics. He's Maryland to the core, and Doug is uh, honest. He's refreshing. He's raw. That's why I like bringing him on the show because you know you're going to get – you're not going to get spin. He's going to tell you exactly what's on his mind, and that's how I roll on a minor detail. And I always love having people who are authentic. So with that, I'm going to wrap up. I appreciate you listening. Please check me out on the web at a aminordetail.com. I am here every Sunday, probably not next Sunday because I will be in Myrtle Beach with my mom and stepfather and my lovely wife, and the kids will be in Florida. Uh, with their grandparents. So we are excited about that. As always, I can't thank you enough for listening to the show. My name is Ryan Miner, and I'm your host of a Minor Detail Radio Podcast. Have a great week, everybody.